Good morning, everyone. In light of our celebration of the Lord's table, in light of communion, this incredible uh, portrait of what Jesus Christ has done for us, I want to say to you, as wonderful as the work of Jesus Christ has been for us, has been for civilization, humanity for the last 2,000 years, from the very beginning of Christianity, it, the work of Christ has always been disputed, debated, mocked, and attacked. I remember as a college student thinking that Christianity is ridiculous. And because God has a sense of humor, I'm here now. <laughs> I mean, I struggled. I, I wrestled. Now, in our passage today, as we continue this series in this little bitty letter called 1 John, the Apostle John, who wrote 1 John, is addressing one of the first century's main objections to Christianity. And the objection was that Jesus Christ couldn't be God incarnate. <clears throat> Jesus, in other words, couldn't be Christmas. Uh, God wouldn't become a man, couldn't become a man. Uh, fully God, fully man in one person, no way, not happening. Now this morning, I want to do something a little differently than I've been, or something a little different than what I've been doing in our series in 1 John. I'm going to look at what John says in response to this objection. But then I want to primarily spend our time addressing a couple current modern objections that we all face to Christianity. I want to give you some tools. I want to give you some things to talk about as you lift up Christ. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So we're going to talk about some of those objections. But let's begin in chapter 4 with verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets, many teachers, have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Now let me stop here before I continue. Now John is facing this objection head on here. I'll talk about that in a minute. But what I want you to notice is really what he's doing, this primary focus, is looking at what's behind that objection to Jesus' incarnation. And he says it's the spirits. Now, to us in the global West, that sounds scary, shaky, wacky. Because we live in a world in the West that focuses almost exclusively on what is physical, what is material, what we can comprehend with our senses. But John is saying, no, no, no. Behind the physical world, there is a spiritual world that is just as real, so test the spirits. The spiritual world, almost all of us as humans know intuitively, we just don't want to deal with it often, we, we don't want anything to do with it, so we just focus on our circumstances. What's going on around us? 
Now look at how John puts it in verses beginning in verse 1. He says, behind every religious teacher, and really you could extrapolate and say behind every person, there is a spirit. And by, behind that spirit is either God or Satan or Satan's chief operating officer, the Antichrist. In other words, John is affirming a spiritual world that is just on the other side of sight. And he is saying, we must, we must take that world seriously. Let's continue verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you... Now, who is this a reference to? This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know that? Because the Spirit is mentioned in verse 2 and then the Spirit will be mentioned again in verse 6 when we get there. Because the Spirit who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. It's like this cosmic group hug. Verse 6, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now this is how we recognize the spirit, notice capital S, of truth, and the spirit of falsehood. Now, there's a couple things I could say here, but I want to say just one. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 contains one of the greatest promises of Christianity. And the promise is this. If you believe in Jesus Christ, even though the world denies Jesus, and even though Satan and his henchmen will do everything they can to trip you up, to tarnish Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit which came to indwell you permanently the moment you believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit in you is infinitely greater. So he says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And that's times infinity. So in other words, like a dog on a leash, Satan may bark at you, but if you know Jesus Christ, he can't bite you. He can't devour you. He can't destroy you because the Spirit has him on a leash. And his greatness is infinite. Greater is the one that is in you than the one that is in the world. Now, I want you in your darkest moments to believe that. When you feel like a failure, you feel guilty, circumstances aren't working out, things are going south, Man, I want you to claim 1 John 4, verse 4, the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world, and because of that, I have and I will overcome. And this overcoming is born in the fact that who's inside us. As a matter of fact, John even teaches, the New Testament teaches, every single person of the Godhead indwells the believer. And man, claim that promise, and don't let your circumstances define you. Now let me go on. Let's look at this objection John is dealing with. Look at verse 2. In verse 2 he says, everyone who acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But I want you to notice the language in verse 2. Because John calls Jesus the Christ. That is a statement of deity. He doesn't say Jesus the man, he says, Jesus the Christ. 
the anointed one, the Messiah. John is boldly declaring that Jesus is not just the son of God, he is God the son. And then he goes on in just a couple of words and says he came in the flesh. He has come to us, he has come to us in the flesh. A statement of Christ's humanity. So what we have in verse 2 is full deity and full humanity expressed in one person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, if you drop down to verse 6, according to verse 6, John tells us how a person views Jesus Christ, reveals whether it's the spirit of truth or the spirit of falsehood that dominates their life. Now that is sobering. And I want you to know it gives me no pleasure to say this because I was the first one in generations to come to Christ in my family. I mean generations. So a spirit of falsehood dominated my family. But God in his grace broke that, shattered that. And greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. Believe that. Take that into your heart. All right, let me leave this and let me move to a couple current modern objections. In order, as I I said a minute ago, in order to to help you um, understand what's going on when people around you, people you love and you care about, make statements. And as a matter of fact, there may be some of you here that are clinging to a couple of these, either consciously or unconsciously, and I want to help you. So here's the first. The first is that Christianity is crazy. Christianity is intolerant. Christianity is arrogant and and narrow because we know today there is no such thing as absolute truth. Have you heard this? And because there is no such thing as absolute truth, let's take it a step further, there is no such thing as right and wrong. So in the language of John, any and every spirit is equally valid. Now, why do I mention this? Why do I choose this objection among many? Because John is assuming absolute truth in the verses we just read. So he says right up front, don't believe every spirit. And he says many false prophets are uh, going out. So test them, test them. Now, there are several problems with this objection. But here's one, I think for me, one of the main ones, and it's fairly simple and easy to understand. And it's this, to declare there is no absolute truth is a statement of absolute truth. Right? So um, in love, I'm not talking about beating people up, but in love when you hear this, don't don't let people get away with this. Hey, hold on. I want to help you because Jesus has changed my life. But to say there's no such thing as absolute truth is a statement of absolute truth. And actually, what you're doing is you're declaring what you're denying. And <laughs> Now, because we deny, we live in a culture in the West, because we deny absolute truth, uh, the way this gets expressed is people say there's no right and wrong. There's no ultimate right and wrong. By the way, parenthetically, that's a statement of right and wrong. Now, I want you to see how uh, 
my favorite preacher, preacher, my favorite author, Pastor Tim Keller, expresses this as he's talking about the Q&A sessions he used to do after he preached. He writes, one of the most frequent statements in those Q&As that I heard was that every person has to define right and wrong for him or herself. I always responded to the speakers by asking, is there anyone in the world right now now doing things that you believe they should stop doing no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior? Now, do you get that? So what he's asking is, do you really think sex trafficking, child slavery, murder, abuse, on and on, is right? And they will say, well, no, it's not right. Yes, of course we think those things are wrong. Then I would ask, doesn't that mean that you do believe there is some kind of moral reality that is there that is not defined by us? That must be abided by regardless of what a person feels or thinks. And that I love this. Almost always the response to that question was silence. Either a thoughtful or a grumpy one. <laughs> now again, I, I, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm trying to help you. And there's a world difference. So if we believe in right and wrong, like even those who say they don't believe in right and wrong, then there has to be an ultimate basis for that right and wrong, and that ultimate basis is absolute. They're absolutes. Now, this is the problem with a famous illustration. It's an anti-absolute, anti-Christian illustration, but it's been making the rounds for a long, long time. And it's the illustration of three blind men touching a different part of an elephant, all trying to figure out what in the world they're touching. And so the illustration goes, the first blind man was touching the trunk of the elephant. And he said to the others, hey, you guys, this is like a long snake. That's what we've got here. And the second blind man who was touching the leg said, no, 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 this isn't a snake. This is like a tree trunk. And the third blind man touching the side of the element said, no, you're both wrong. This is something huge. And when you move towards the bottom, it's rounded. Now, the point of the illustration is each and every one of us are like those three blind men. In other words, we all, individually or any religion, only see a portion of reality. But, and Leslie Newbegin pointed this out decades ago, this illustration backfires. This il illustration falls in on itself because the story is told from the vantage point of someone who is not blind. Someone who claims total, comprehensive, absolute knowledge. I mean, how, how could anyone know that Christianity, or for that matter, any other religion, cannot see the whole truth unless you claim to have a superior, comprehensive knowledge of truth that you just claim no religion has? Are you kind of with me? So here's my point with this first objection. 
It is no more narrow or absolutist to claim that one religion is right, as John does in our passage, than to claim that all religions are equally right or all religions are wrong. So, so use this. Use this to the glory of God. Objection number two. It's a more familiar objection that we hear a lot that Jesus Christ can't be the only way. Now this is really a version, a more specific aspect of the first objection. So the objection goes, Jesus can be a truth but not the truth. Anything else is intolerant. John, however, in these six verses, claims the opposite. He claims that Christianity stands or falls on this belief that there was a true and permanent wedding of perfect deity, if I can say that, and perfect humanity in one person, the person of Jesus Christ, who alone dies for our sins. That's what John is defending here. And then he tells us that the primary task of the Holy Spirit is to point us to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus not just as useful, one among many religious teachers, but we see Jesus as beautiful, the incarnate Son of God. Now, but how can this be? How, how can it be that Jesus is the only way? Well, there's a lot to be said. I want to just say two things kind of that sink here. And, and the first is, and this is coming from a, a somewhat logical perspective, if we believe God exists, if we believe there's a personal God that exists, and we believe that God is both holy and loving, and that humanity's biggest problem is our brokenness, our sin, then it makes perfect sense that God would send his son to atone for our sins. It just flows. Now that's a leap of faith to be sure, but everything's a leap of faith. And then Second, and, and, and this is more germane because it's right here in 1 John, a second reason we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way because, is because John's testimony is reliable. It's historically reliable. So if you recall in the first couple verses of 1 John, what is John doing? He's saying, I was an eyewitness. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I, I touched Jesus. I was one of the 12 disciples. I spent three years with Jesus. And so, therefore, when we come to verses 2 and 3 in our passage, this is why John is so strong about Jesus coming in the flesh. Because I lived with him. I knew him. Further, we know as a matter of history that John is older when he writes these three letters and he's soon to be killed. Now there's a little historical debate about did he die of natural causes or was he killed, was he martyred? I tend to think he was killed 
for his faith in Jesus Christ. And so what that means, if you tease it out, if you play it out, is that John would write the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, these three letters of John, knowing the whole time they were a lie. But then, more importantly, he would die for a lie, knowing the whole time it was a lie. I mean, who does that? Who does that? John is claiming here in these verses that Jesus is the very incarnation of God and because of that, Jesus is the only way to God. So test the spirits. Be careful what you watch on TV. Be careful of who you listen to. Objection number three. This is a very common one. What matters isn't what you believe. What matters is that you're a good person. So therefore, be a good person. Now, we have a problem in the church, not to mention our culture. And the problem in the church and our culture is we tend to think the word doctrine is a bad word. Because it smacks of intolerance, uh, hypocrisy, bigotry, you, you choose. And I want to say to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, the word doctrine should never be a word you're ashamed of. John's point is you must get the doctrine of Jesus Christ right. You have to. Because everything you and I do, this is true of non-Christians and Christians, everything we do is based on our doctrine, the doctrine of our personal beliefs. So all of us have doctrines, not just Christians. And some of you say, time out, hold on, Rob, whoa, 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 we're in a scientific world today, and we know that um, uh, answers to the ultimate questions in life are not knowable. And I say, wait, what did you just say? You, uh, uh, the answers aren't knowable. Well, do you realize that, in fact, is an answer? I mean, we just turn around. Do you see what I'm doing? We just turn around. There's no answers? No, that's an answer. It's sort of like saying, you know, religion has to be private. And you can say to the person, well, wait a minute, that's a public statement. And you're saying your answer is there's no answers, and so you're going to build your life on the answer, the doctrine that there are no answers. And John says, I saw him. I was with him. I touched him. And so when someone says to you, all that matters is that you be a good person, they are stating two things. First, they have formulated a doctrine. And the doctrine is what matters is they give, live a good life. And secondly, that notion that all that matters is live a good life is actually justification by works. It's a form of self-salvation to where they have to fill in that blank. Now here's kind of an irony in all of this. Those of us who follow Christ admit that we believe in doctrine. Sometimes we're a little shy about the language, but generally we admit we believe in doctrine. 
but so does everyone else. But they're just not being honest about it. They're not being honest. Why? Because it ain't cool. It's just not cool. Now, those are the objections. Let me make a couple applications. First, according to this passage, according to the entirety of these six verses, I want you to understand that spiritual deception is real. It's always going on. So it leads people to deny Christ and want nothing to do with Christ. But I want to talk for a moment about spiritual deception in the life of a Christian because when we come to Christ, spiritual deception doesn't go away. And let me do this by going to the classic passage, Ephesians chapter 6. Look at two verses, Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, what does Paul mean by the devil's schemes? What are the devil's schemes? And the answer is that the devil's schemes aren't primarily about him putting fang prints in your flesh, but the enemy implanting lies in your heart. Not out to devour your flesh. He's out to destroy your heart. To implant lies. Deception, as we see in John. Lies about what? Well, lies about Jesus. Lies about the gospel. Lies about you. Spiritual warfare, which John is talking about and Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6, even for the Christian, is our daily battle for our hearts. For who's alive in your heart? For who reigns in your heart? For what is your source of joy? This is why Paul, and, and this kind of puts it over the top for me, this is why Paul later in Ephesians 6 will say the very first piece of armor you and I are to put on as Christians is the belt of truth. Truth. Which means that we as Christians engaging in spiritual warfare daily continually press the truth of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ into our hearts. So what we know in our head objectively becomes true in our lives experientially, subjectively. And so we're taking God's word, and it's not just a head thing, it becomes a heart thing, and we're understanding, you know, in this moment I'm tempted to do this, or I'm frustrated about this, or man, I'm as angry as anything about this. And we say, okay, hold on, hold on. The enemy in this moment is implanting a lie in my heart, and you better have the Word of God as a resource, otherwise you're defenseless. This is why I say over and over, take the study and the memorization and meditation on the Word of God so seriously. It's what John is getting at. It's what Paul getting at in, in Ephesians chapter 6. You see, sin, whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, is a suicidal action of the will against itself. It's self-destructive. And Ephesians 6 is a call to overcome the spirits of falsehood. Mentioned in John chapter 4 and verse 6. 
How? By speaking truth into your heart. So why? So you can create new instincts. Man, a year ago, I would, I would just fall apart. I'm not, I'm not that way anymore because God's word is changing me from the inside out. And what does John 4 add to this discussion? John 4 says it all starts with your acknowledgement, your allegiance to. That's what acknowledgement here means. You're aligned with your allegiance to and your love for the death and resurrection and glory of Jesus. And it's real to you. The second application. Never forget, never forget, Christian, that you have enormous capability because of the Spirit in you. Enormous capability. Not because of anything in you, because of the Spirit who indwells you. So you have the capability to overcome. That's the word. To overcome sin, Satan, lies, deception. Anger, guilt, bitterness. Lust, greed, envy, on and on and on. Because you understand your confidence, your security, your identity isn't in your circumstances. It's not in anything horizontal. It's in the vertical. God's love for you in Jesus Christ and your union in Christ. And God has given you the Holy Spirit. Let me just add this. God has given you the Holy Spirit, follower of Christ, not to take away all your problems. That does not happen in this life. But God has given you the Spirit so that you will find rest in Jesus. Joy in Jesus. As I've said repeatedly, adversity is inevitable, but misery is a choice. And God gives you the Spirit to open your eyes to the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus and all he has done. Because it's in seeing Jesus, it's in understanding the gospel, that you find the ability, the spirit ability to interpret your problems and to overcome your pain. You are not dominated as a Christian by your failure, by your circumstances. They are not the dominant reality in your life. Jesus Christ is, and God has given you the Spirit to point you to Jesus. Now, finally, and I'm done. If you are here this morning and you haven't come to Christ, or you're not sure exactly where you are with Jesus, man, I want to say to you, come to Christ. Come to him now. The Spirit has been using his word to speak to you. Uh, don't turn away from this moment. Uh, come to Christ not because in Jesus Christ all your questions will be answered. That doesn't happen. But come to Jesus Christ because if Jesus is not God in the flesh, come to die for our sins, then there are no answers. And all we're left with is living a good life which has no basis underneath it. Come to Christ. Let's pray. If the Spirit is speaking to you, 
prompting you to turn to Jesus. Come to him. Acknowledge your spiritual brokenness of bankruptcy, sin. And say in the quietness of this moment, thank you, God, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I receive Jesus as my Savior. Do that now. And Father, for the rest of us, many of us have been walking with Christ for decades, others of us just for a couple of weeks. And we pray that you would help us to see that Jesus is not just merely useful, but beautiful. Amen. Amen. Church, can we stand together and declare what we believe? We serve a God who is powerful, who knows us, who loves us, and is calling us back to himself. As we declare these truths together, let's lift this song. My Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. This is our story. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. Yeah.